1: Hello, guys and girls. The program you are about to hear will be both fun and educational, but it is not a substitute for medical advice. Although we are doctors, we are not your doctors. Hello, and welcome to Travel Medicine. As always, I'm your friendly neighborhood internal medicine doc, Dr. J.
0: Hey guys, Dr. Santosh here, pediatric infectious disease doc researcher.
1: Santosh, I've been thinking about this. Would you rather have a disease or a treatment named after you? I. It's the think big it... doctor question, of course. Yeah. Like when we get into this field for the glory, and yeah. and everyone but... has to pick a track.
0: Right. Well, here's the thing. So surgeons get treatments named after them all the time, right? Like, you know, the, a particular procedure, LADS bands, LADS procedure. You know, I was Dr. LAD. Um, there, there's a few of those out there. I actually don't know because I'm on the medical side. I don't know that there are a lot of, you know, there's no antibiotics for sure. I, I don't know there are not a lot of like medical Treatments that are named after people, I think I may have to resign myself to. It's probably going to be a disease, like it's it's going to be, you know, like you know Nadipuram's jaundice. Or <laughs> oh
1: wait wait, what about that? We've talked before about the antibiotic named for a young girl who was.
0: Oh yeah, yeah. so and and that wasn't for so yeah, Bassi uh was named after a Miss Tracy. Where, you know, she had fallen down, got an open wound, but interestingly enough, she got scraped into the wound this um, mold, which a lot like penicillium produces an antimicrobial compound. And so when that was isolated, it was named in honor of the girl, Tracy, or Miss Tracy. So it was called Bassey Tracin.
1: So, as I I said, would you rather have, I mean, I'm not saying it happens often, but given the choice...
0: Yeah, like if it was like you know, oh, have you taken your nadipuramin today? <laughs>
1: oh, that <laughs> you know? is a good one.
0: Yeah, yeah. Oh, you know, oh, you know, we found this rare, you know, vector-borne virus that causes a hemorrhagic fever in the wilds of the Great Rift Valley, and the treatment for it is you know, two hundred and fifty milligrams of santonamine divided. <laughs> You know, q six hours daily. Indian
1: names are so much better for that. (laughs) I'm stuck with like (laughs) dwaretskiosis.
0: Well, that so that's the disease. So it would be more like dwaretskiamide. Joshamide. Joshamide. Joshamide for sure. We we could we could treat you know like a like a speech disorder with Joshamide.
1: Oh, okay. Okay, add us in the comments or on Twitter or you know <laughs> Facebook wherever. Uh, what would you listeners? Would you rather have a disease or treatment, and what would it be called? And that kind of brings us into uh, this week's topic, where we'll be talking about a disease that was named for somebody, and uh, that was my intro segue for this week's Around the World in Eighty Plagues. <laughs>
0: Damn it. Ugh, I didn't hit the mute button fast enough. You never will. <laughs> My ears hurt so much.
1: <laughs> so, this week's plague, we're going to be talking about Shigella. The term Shigella is it's basically a form of dysentery used to describe the passage of bloody and mucus containing stools accompanied by straining and the fancy medical word for cramps, which is tenesmus. <laughs> it's a good yeah. word.
0: It is a good one. T- tenesmus is kind of, uh, it actually is a very specific term. The neat thing about it, if you or I say tenesmus to each other, we know exactly what we're talking about, It's the feeling of like when you're pooping and you know, your your rectum's empty, there's nothing more to get out, but you still have those kind of spasms of like you feel like you still need to push out some poop and so you've got that like cramping burning uh you finished
1: a bowl of hot chili and you know the problem is coming like you can't
0: relax because it'll actually hurt more to (laughs) that's that's tenesmus that's tenesmus yeah
1: that was a pretty remarkably mature discussion for this show
0: yeah it is let's (laughs) let's move
1: on before we screw it up so uh, four species comprise mm-hmm. the overall genus of Shigella bacteria. There's Shigella yeah. dysenteria, Shigella Makes flexneri. Sense.
0: We're gonna hear about him, Lynn.
1: Shigella Boydie, like Chef Boyardee, and, <laughs> and Shigella and Shigella Sonier. Each one of these Uh, has (laughs) shared and unique pathogenic properties, before Santos Mm -hmm. corrects my pronunciation, and each (laughs) has an interesting story behind its discovery. But before we get to those, let's talk about how it got the name Shigella. And we circle back around to our opening convo. The Japanese physician, Kiyoshi Shiga, is for Mm -hmm. the most part credited with the discovery of the first dysentery bacillus in Japan, right at the turn of the century around 1898. He cultured this bacteria from a patient's poop during a huge epidemic of dysentery in Japan. The real impressive thing about this is there was no special lab growth mediums or anything. He was just like, well, let me take a scoop of poop from a person and see what I can get. And all he used was just a little bit of sugar water.
0: Yeah, this is, you know, as compared to what we have today, you'll have blood agar, Um, we have a very specialized agar for all of these gram-negative bacilli called... uh,
1: Agar the Horrible!
0: (laughs) No, I I don't know what direction you're going to take this in, but it's called McConkie agar.
1: (laughs) Wasn't that the Star Wars one, McClunky? No, it's not...
0: So it's not a Star Wars one. I I I brought it up because you said, oh, do you want the disease or do you want the treatment? You can also have like, you know, a, a diagnostic agar named after you if you if you have we have all of these other ones. We have
1: Satosh this, Agarporum.
0: Yeah. <laughs> well it would be nadhipuram Zagar, like McConkie agar we have a whole bunch of these actually because he you know makonki came up with the the formulation to actually see if they could differentiate the bacteria that fermented uh lactose versus the ones that are not fermented but that were able to metabolize lactose versus those that don't. Um, actually, it was right fermenting. So we have all these special things now where we can actually start to classify the bacteria really quick, like as soon as they grow. You know, he didn't have culture conditions. He didn't have a flat plate where he could pick off individual colonies. Like it was...
1: said a big you know, pile of soldier poop.
0: Incubating it somewhere, I'm assuming like a cabinet, <laughs> rather than having a st- you know an incubator where you could seal it off and... Gross. You know... <laughs> uh, yeah,
1: exactly. But one of the neat things that you're gonna have to explain, because it sounds impressive, but I don't know any lab work. So uh in addition to culture of the organism, which was like pretty impressive by itself, the innovation that was critical to Shiga's discovery and kind of led to the disease being named for him, was his mm-hmm. use of the patient's own serum to agglutinate the dysentery bacillus cultured from that same stools. So in my understanding, he got the patient poop and then he took that patient's same blood and dropped it onto the poop and that's how you magically grew enough bacteria to identify what was infecting the patient.
0: Yeah, he was he was making like an ad hoc blood agar. So he was he was basically giving the bacteria the nutrition it <laughs> needed <laughs> in order to, you know, to get stuff like sugars and proteins and iron in order to grow.
1: But it's not just that, it's that he used serum from the sick people because if he took blood products from healthy individuals and dropped it into this poop dish, it okay. would not agglutinate the dysentery bacillus. So it only agglutinated similar organisms in a pure culture isolated from stools of other dysentery patients, while serum from healthy individuals would not agglutinate the bacteria.
0: Oh, I am so, so sorry here, Josh. I was, I was getting confused about what was going on here. Okay, so. Basically, he didn't know it at the time. He was actually looking for antibody production, right? So if you're going into the serum of the patient that's been exposed to Shigella, they have formed antibodies against that particular bacteria. One of the things that antibodies do is they cross-link like this. So they actually, once they attach to their epitope, they kind of glom onto each other to immobilize the bacteria and then with the regular immune system like macrophages and stuff can come along and eat them and destroy them you know so they all they can't move they're stuck in one spot so it makes a lot of sense those folks who had been exposed to shigella or had gotten sick from it or maybe even had asymptomatic infection had formed antibody those antibodies went in and agglutinated literally means glommed up made it made like glue them together. Whereas if you've never been exposed, if you're healthy, then you haven't made antibody against this bacteria and you know, they don't get glommed up or glopped up.
1: Yeah. So that was really his, his innovation is let's, let's drop infected blood onto infected (laughs) poop and see what happens.
0: (laughs) Well, and probably he did, you know, like he, he got a pure culture, like after he got the poop, because there would have been so many bacteria in there. Like he got the Shigella. I, he probably was able to spin out the serum, like so it wasn't full of cells. It was just the serum part of the of the
1: blood. I'm just picturing like, come on, sh- come on, Kiyoshi. you can do this. They're going to name this for you. There's going to be there's going to be Kyoshi bacteria, kiyoshi bacillus. <laughs> Um, no,
0: I mean, a lot of these folks are probably, you know, they're they're just doing their work. A lot of the time, they're really not thinking about the glory.
1: So that was the first discovery of the bacteria that caused dysentery and therefore got the name Shiga. You know, so Shiga, Shigella dysenteria. So mm-hmm. there's, there's our first one. Let's talk about the next. Uh, only a year later, in 1899, Simon Flexner... Uh, Mm -hmm. that's an important name, I'll come back to it in a second, was a member of the John Hopkins Commission in Manila in the Philippines. Now, why do you care who Simon Flexner was? Well, he had a younger brother, Abraham, who wrote a pretty well-known report, the Flexner Report, that basically sparked the entire beginning of medical education in the United States and Canada. We've talked about this in previous episodes, how the Flexner Report kind of looked at the state of medical education and said, y'all are training some serious quacks except for John (laughs) Hopkins, and you should all model yourselves on their kind of rounding and residency and those. So uh, that was written by the younger brother of this guy. So back to him. That's
0: a power family.
1: Right? (laughs) Um, So he set sail from John Hopkins for the Philippine Islands, which had at that time been newly annexed. And he was concerned that a lot of dysentery was endemic to the Philippines, and in particular, was the most frequent and important cause of disability and mortality in the U.S. Army.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So this, uh, it's kind of disappointing. Uh, You know, at first you're like, oh, you know, we're going there to help people who... Less fortunate, you know, they maybe they need help from an outside source or whatever it is. Nope our our uh, folks when they go over there to like fight and bomb shit, they get sick from stuff. So how do we prevent that?
1: <laughs> I mean, he may have helped other people too, but I'm I'm saying he was he was oh
0: no the military <laughs> commission. <laughs> yeah, yeah, a hundred percent. He helped other people. It's just, it's genuinely just like the motivation is kind of like. Uh.
1: <laughs> but on yeah. the way to Manila, the commission, the ship he was on, stopped mm-hmm. by Tokyo. And sure. while in Tokyo, Flexner heard of Shiga's work on dysentery. And he's like, This seems like a really good way to see if this is what's going on in our people. So he followed the same methods and he cultured a brand new type of organism from feces and post mortem tissues among dysentery patients in the U.S. Army. So. <laughs> Whereas Shiga had gotten it all from uh, people in Japan, just, you know, local local folks, and he was S-Dysenteria, mm-hmm. Shigella Flexneri was found first among U.S. soldiers and was a different strain that had been, you know, either picked up in the Philippines or on the ships or, you know, filthy sailors, they go from port to port. Uh, <laughs> so there's there's our second yeah. branch.
0: Uh, So so, yeah, new species found. And now we're getting kind of an idea of that the fact that this bacteria has definitely kind of spawned family around the globe, (laughs) and then found endemic niches. But in terms of the genus, it stayed the same. So we know like ancestrally, they're pretty much like from the same, like, evolutionary ancestor so dude there was like one of the grandpas or great 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 grandpas of these bacteria millions of years ago that like it got around
1: that's some old shit
0: <laughs> and uh, it's the yeah the so OG now, shit
1: now so now we've got two of our four branches of the family of dysenteries let's move mm-hmm. on to the third 15 years later, 1915, around World War I, Carl Son isolated Mm -hmm. a lactose late fermenter and found it to be the main causative agent of dysentery in Denmark. Now, this is interesting because both Shiga's and Flexner's bacillus were lactose non-fermenters, and this new strain resembled the Flexner group bacillus. So it had a lot of the same properties. It caused a lot of the same diseases, but it wouldn't cause a reaction on the medium. And it didn't agglutinate in anti-Flexner antiserum. So if you dropped infected blood on infected poop, nothing would happen. And it didn't agglutinate in the polyvariant anti-dysentery antiserum, which is people who had been cured of this disease, whether from Shiga or Flexner's groups, and you dropped their blood, and still, nothing mm-hmm. would happen, but people were still getting sick with these same symptoms. So, he noted that most of the cases of dysentery caused by the bacillus that he found actually were pretty mild. Of the different versions of Shigella, this is kind of the least threatening. It's still not pleasant. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Yeah, this is this is kind of the chill one. Finally,
1: <laughs> about another fifteen years later in nineteen twenty nine, Major J.S.K. Boyd of the British Royal Army, so we've been all around the world. Japan, US, mm-hmm. Denmark, Britain.
0: I'm telling you, dude, this bacteria got around.
1: Major J. S. K. Boyd of the British Royal Army Medical Corps was working in Bangalore, India. So another mm, another place we moved to. Yeah, And he was working on this so-called inagglutable Flexner group. So just like the one that Son had found, Boyd found in India a strain of dysentery that was not essentially diagnosable by existing methods. Mm-hmm. And it had all the characteristics of the Flexner bacillus, but it just wouldn't agglutinate. And he kind of built up a pretty impressive collection of about several thousand cultures from individuals <laughs> with dysentery cases.
0: Yeah, and yeah.
1: This allowed Major Boyd to establish the very first comprehensive classification and naming system of dysentery bacilli, still used today. So all dysentery <laughs> from Shigella falls into one of these four families, and that classification system was invented by the last guy to the party.
0: Well, you had to kind of, you had to be aware of all of them. And then finally, then you'd be able to get some perspective on kind of how they divided up. Now, Josh, this was before genetics. This was before any kind of sophisticated biochemical analysis of these bacteria. They did have some biochemistry that they could do. As you said, they were lactose non-fermenters or lactose slow fermenters. But in order to classify these bacteria super rigorously, it was, it was difficult to do. So a lot of it was like this. You know, they produce similar symptoms and, you know, they, they have similar morphology under the microscope and that kind of a thing. So Shigella looks like it. they are all related to each other. They stay in these groupings. But there are several other enteric pathogens which actually have been named and renamed a lot over time because we actually found out that even if they kind of act alike, they're actually not that closely related to each other. So this is one of those taxonomies that stayed really, really close, like through the ages.
1: Of course, not only are there a ton of classifications of scientific names, but because every country in the world has some form of bacillary dysentery,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: there are a bunch of really fun names um, for this infection. Uh, among them, you may have heard things like the GIs, deli Mm. belly the simla trots that's fun and my (laughs) personal favorite gimpy tummy
0: gimpy tummy is nice because it doesn't have that like geographic thing if you name a disease after like a a native indian city scares people away
1: i i feel like it wasn't the indian people who named it no no.
0: (laughs) these these were all these were colonial you know these these were conqueror the 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 people coming over and taking stuff you could just say
1: the white people that's fine
0: well, <laughs> yes. well, specifically, it was it was during the time of the British Empire, right? So they they were coming in, making some discoveries here and there, and then
1: and getting you know, a lot of gimpy tummy,
0: yeah, and getting a lot of gimpy tummy. But you know, they found it when they were in New Delhi, so they'd call it like Delhi Belly because hey, rhymes.
1: And <laughs> you know what? Everybody is better at naming than scientists. As opposed to if we <laughs> allow, if we were to say open. Disease classification up to the internet.
0: Oh, yeah. Bacillary dysentery
1: would be known as poopy McButthole.
0: Yeah. Oh. like in a heartbeat it would yeah i was going to i thought you were going to go for poopy McPoop face but yeah absolutely so, <laughs> yeah but we did we took dysentery, flexneri boydii and sonnei and just a b c d that's that's about and the said, you know of all the
1: all the bacillary <laughs> dysentery kind of fall into one of these and you'll notice all four of them were named literally just by adding a vowel or two onto the discoverer's name.
0: <laughs> uh, uh, with the exception of dysentery, which causes dysentery.
1: You know, he got the whole family. She got dysentery.
0: <laughs> yes, Shiga did. So uh, we Shiga gets the whole damn family.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's what happens when you're first to the party. But when you're late to the party, you get to come up with all the classifications. So, you know, it's early bird gets the worm early worm gets eaten, who knows. Um, but dysentery was the US Army's second biggest disease threat in tropical areas uh, out outperformed only by malaria. So we've now established this is a disease that is in every corner of the world, affects everybody. So now let's actually start getting into it. So the greatest risk of negative outcomes, as with most diseases, children and the elderly, one of the four leading causes of severe diarrheal disease in children less than five. Bonus, Santosh, you're a pediatric infectious disease doctor. What are yeah. the top three that beat it out?
0: <laughs> so almost always we talk about with children, cholera and uh, uh, well, cholera, thank God, is, is slowly getting wiped out. I'll make it but even
1: easier. What's the yeah, number yeah. one? Shigella is one of the four leading causes of diarrhea disease in children under okay. five. Gotcha, gotcha. What's the number one?
0: Number one, well, we've eradicated it here. We're well, not eradicated, but we've really tamped it down here in the United States thanks to vaccination. But for a long time, rotavirus.
1: Yeah. And around um, the world, it still is.
0: It still is rotavirus. And and horrible killer I was very happy to say that during my residency, rotavirus vaccination was widely introduced. It, it had been there before, but this was when it was like actually put into the vaccine regimens. And Josh, I will tell you, the next year after proper rotavirus vaccination was brought online, all those kids who would ritually come in with IV bags to stay two, three, five days, just like with diarrhea that you could not stop, like that entire population of sick kids just went away. It was so cool. It was one of the most neat like vaccine in action things that I'd ever seen. And for the first time, I felt like all those folks who had run the polio hospital, which Miami Children's used to be, when they saw those cases just disintegrate. It's so awesome.
1: In modern times... Spread Mm -hmm. of this pathogen occurs through, oh, we haven't done any good mnemonics in a while. It occurs through contaminated water and the five Fs.
0: (laughs) Okay. All right.
1: You want to take a guess what they are?
0: Oh, oh, it can't be farts.
1: You're not super far Uh, off. It's
0: fecal, fecal oral. Yeah, Yeah. so it's fecal. Okay.
1: So the five Fs, the Mm -hmm. way that Shigella spreads. Yeah. Food, feces, fingers, flies, and fomites.
0: Oh, gotcha. Okay. That makes a ton of sense. All right. So, so food, yeah.
1: handler, food handlers with less than stellar personal hygiene.
0: We do have to acknowledge that for a lot of the world, like running water and that type of sanitation is not always available.
1: I said less than stellar. <laughs> I'm not making value judgments. Just, you know.
0: gotcha. Food
1: yeah, handlers yeah. with less than stellar personal hygiene have mm-hmm. frequently been implicated as a contributing source um Mm -hmm. for example in canada a small outbreak that involved contaminated homemade you know as opposed to store-bought or fancy restaurant style moose soup
0: that's not come on you're just making fun of our canadian friends
1: i love i would absolutely eat moose soup but here's (laughs) here's why this is here's why this is a little bit scary one of the features that makes shigella such a potent and successful pathogen is the Mm -hmm. low amount of bacteria needed to cause illness a mere hundred bacteria that's nothing hundred bacteria can cause yeah. severe disease and outbreak. And that's why I said an outbreak in that involved contaminated homemade moose soup was prepared mm-hmm. by a single infected individual. And it eventually caused shigellosis in half the population of a small town. <laughs> all well, because I, one individual, that doesn't yes. even mean that they were making it for all these people. This one, right, right, right. Had, you know, top ramen moose flavor was infected and then he infected half of his town.
0: <laughs> well, two things. One, I I always forget how friggin' huge moose are. So, like just the sheer number of people that a single moose can feed. And I'm guessing it was one moose. <laughs> but the other part of it is in you're right, Josh, in terms of what we call the inoculum or the the amount of bacteria that you need in order to cause disease in comparison to Shigella, which is what we call ten to the second, so ten to the second power bacteria on average in order to cause disease the the other bacteria that we usually think of causing gastroenteritis is on the order of like 10 to the fifth, 10 to the sixth. So 10,000 bacteria or 100,000 or sometimes even a million bacteria. And if you get below that, you, you, you might get the bacteria, but you don't necessarily get sick very easily. You, just a couple of them, and they can replicate very quickly and then cause disease in a bad way. You don't need much at
1: all. So if you were to take, say, a glass of tap water from Mexico, a glass of mm-hmm. tap water from India, yeah. a glass of tap water from Japan, all three of those glasses of tap water yeah. have bacteria floating around in them. 100% oh, sure. guaranteed.
0: Right, right, but yeah.
1: The amount of bacteria that you're taking in versus the amount required to cause disease and what bacteria are in that glass of water. That's what right. we're saying. So with Shigella, you only need easy to cram yeah. 100, 100 bacteria into a glass of water. Very, oh, very easy.
0: Way, way too easy. A yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: little trickier to get a million bacteria mm-hmm. or a hundred thousand bacteria into that same glass, which means you're not getting enough of that inoculum to tip you over into a disease state. Another mm-hmm. example, the late nineteen seventies, there was an epidemic of Shigella dysenteria, our first one in Central Africa. Started in northeastern Zaire in 1979 and within a month had spread to Rwanda, Burundi, and Tanzania, all neighboring countries. Now, Mm -hmm. initial isolates were resistant to ampicillin and chloramphenicol, two of the drugs that are very commonly used for most infections in that part of the world. Yeah. After only another couple months, they had acquired resistance to Bactrim, tetracycline, and nalidixic acid almost yeah. immediately, a matter of weeks to months after these drugs were introduced as treatments for this. So not only does it take a <laughs> small amount of bacteria to cause the disease, it's a remarkably flexible and adaptable bacteria, making it hard to treat if you don't get right on it.
0: Yeah, yeah, this is the the biggest trouble that we've had in outbreak situations. A lot of the time, Josh, things like E. coli, You can target a population with a single antibiotic and, you know, yes, they're passing antimicrobial genes back and forth and also with other species of bacteria and other genuses of bacteria, but it's just not as quick as Shikella. This damn bacteria has such a short doubling time And a high rate of acquisition of these plasmids and, you know, the ability to just kind of like grab on to these, uh, either acquire a mutation or grab a little plasmid that has a resistance marker on it. It's such a pain in the ass. (laughs) Literally.
1: Not only is it a highly adaptable, highly infectious disease, it's also, well, sneaky as shit. Because (laughs) the epidemic nature of dysentery is still a puzzle. Epidemics are periodic. They Mm -hmm. show up all over the world, and they disappear just as frequently. And it's not really clear where these strains are hiding in between the epidemics. We don't really understand what its baseline reservoir is in between these. Uh, In the U.S., most cases are caused by either the family Flexneri, or Soniae, which, as we mentioned, are the milder, more moderate forms of disease. So, those are our Oregon Trail kind of versions of mm-hmm. dysentery. <laughs> um, mostly. Yeah, that's
0: the. I, I think everyone at some point. Oh, man, there's a lot of our listeners who probably have never played Oregon Trail and got dysentery and, and died.
1: I, I think there's more than you're giving credit for. That that game's got staying power, whereas in Africa most cases tend to be sh- uh Shigella dysentery in Asia. It's a mix between Shigella dysentery and Boydie um now, Boydie is again a milder, not as mild as Sonier, but yeah. more we'll say if Sonier often doesn't require treatment beyond supportive care, Boydie could go either way. Sometimes it can just, you know, live and let live. Other times it requires some additional support. Flexneri is more likely if you are immunocompromised, such as young, uh, very young, very old, or immunocompromised, you are more likely to require some kind of additional antibiotics or hospitalization. And the most infectious and the the one that causes the most epidemics is Shigella dysenteria but that's also because it's located in parts of the world that have the least access to clean hygiene easily accessible medical care things like that
0: we also do have an issue of overcrowding especially if uh, it's overcrowding with animals because if you have if you're not able to get far enough away to poop that's away from your water source, then either you're going to actually circulate that strain or species of Shigella kind of round and round the community, or
1: unfortunately,
0: like if you're sharing a river with a village downstream, you know, you're going to get someone sick downstream.
1: You shit me right round, baby, right (laughs) round. Gross. By the the river, baby, right round, round, round. Uh, um, Now we're going to move a little bit more into the modern era before we leave the the epidemiology behind. And in the late 1980s, dysentery did, in fact, reach an epidemic in the U.S., but in a very specific population. This term isn't used anymore, but – In the pre-HIV AIDS era, to describe a pattern of anorectal and colon diseases frequently observed in homosexual patients, Shigella or dysentery was basically referred to as gay bowel syndrome. And by 1999, when I graduated high school, they confirmed that this could be a sexually transmitted disease. Dysentery was found to be transmittable not only by our five Fs, so now, you remember what those are?
0: <laughs> uh, feces, fingers, food, flies, and I can't remember number five.
1: Fomites. Fomites. And now right. we're going to add a sixth F that can transmit it. Okay. Food, feces, fingers, flies, fomites, and lovemaking.
0: No. <laughs> Seriously, you're the one censoring yourself? Have we stepped into like bizarro world? What is happening? <laughs>
1: Santosh, there could be yeah. little ears listening to this show. I don't want to hear, I don't want them to hear some of that shit.
0: No, okay. <laughs> I, I, didn't know, uh, well, I didn't know if you were going to use the biblical one of fornicating.
1: Oh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> Much better. All right. So the six F's food, feces, fingers, flies, fomites and fornication. There was a much higher risk because of their method of interaction. Now, the CDC did drop the use of this term in 2005, so I mention it more for historical interest, because you know me, folks. I geek out on that kind of trivia.
0: Um, (laughs) Yeah, yeah. I'm glad. And we're actually getting rid of a lot of these terms, which uh, circle around kind of uh, hateful stigmas or, or now aged stigmas that, that no longer apply. So it's, it's a very, very good thing. However, Josh, I will say that um, not just with men having sex with men, but anywhere where there's just a lot of actual sexual uh, promiscuity and especially unprotected sex, this is still one of the sexually transmitted infections that we think about if we see an outbreak of like diarrheal or dysentery illness.
1: Looking at you, Ibiza. And you, Miami
0: <laughs> oh, so Miami. let's
1: let's talk about the symptoms. so I mean, yes, we've been kind of dancing around, but it does mm-hmm. lead to pretty intense diarrhea, and although although damage to the intestinal lining is you know feels awful, uh, its ability to spread systemically to the rest of the body is very mm-hmm. rare and in somebody who is an otherwise healthy individual, most of the time the disease is pretty self-limiting and a lot of them resolve even without antibiotics in 10 to 14 days.
0: Yeah, so this is where the that majority of cases, meaning in the middle years of life, so you're not a child, you're not an elderly person, yes, you'll have some bloody diarrhea, it'll hurt, you won't feel good. And, you know, you just leave it alone and you will get to treatment in a bit. But essentially, you don't even treat it. You just make sure that you don't poop in the water supply and you you'll get better with time and then you'll have immunity.
1: Can you imagine that, Dr. Visit? I've been pooping blood. Well, try to avoid water supplies. Yeah.
0: (laughs) See, well, that's what. No, that's how my clinic goes. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. That's what it, see. That's what the person would say if you went to visit, like a public health specialist, instead of a, just a you know, like a primary care physician may not necessarily have that kind of a perspective. But you might say something uh, much in the way nowadays we would say, you know, if you're having cold cough symptoms you know, rather than go to work, please stay home. This would be the same kind of idea in the the modern context. Like, please don't go hang out with other people. You know, all we need you doing is, like, you forget to wash your hands after you poop, and then you go shake someone's hand. And, you know.
1: Well, bad, bad luckily, bad. Santosh, we live in a world where shaking somebody's hand is no longer a going concern. Yeah. <laughs> so, I, silver linings.
0: Yeah. <laughs> And just as a corollary, yeah, in a lot of places, as COVID went down, you know, as people observe proper social distancing and everything. We did also eliminate a lot of colds and diarrheal illnesses at the same time. That, Josh, and getting rid of those cruise ships. Oh, my God.
1: Cruise ships are cesspits <laughs> of disease. <laughs> so gross. They, they they always have and they always will be.
0: I say don't poop where you eat and live like you cannot avoid that
1: when might you need to receive treatment for this because I just said a little bit earlier a lot of times it's self limiting and you don't even need antibiotics so when should I be concerned enough to go seek treatment what kinds of symptoms might make you think I need more than just some general supportive care.
0: Some of the worrisome things are if you have an immune compromise. So that's kind of automatic for people who are very old and very young. Uh, Most commonly, Josh, is that... Uh, a parent will be handling food that's contaminated with it, like chopping or preparing it before it's cooked. And then they go and they prepare the bottle um, without washing their hands properly. But those young kiddos, uh, and then of course in endemic areas, um, a lot of them have a, a higher risk of having bad hemorrhage from the colitis and really like kind of bleeding out. They actually may need antibiotics to help them out in cases uh, where there's peritonitis because the dysentery gets so bad that the colon, the wall of the intestine actually wears thin and um, it perforates. So imagine there's there's so
1: much inflammation from the buildup of this bacteria in your intestine that the lining becomes crumbly like a feta cheese. And as little pieces sort of break off, that's where you're seeing the hemorrhage. It's little little bits of your intestinal tissue that are so inflamed, they're simply falling off, traveling through your intestine and being pooped out. And you're seeing that hemorrhage. And as that intestinal lining gets thinner and thinner, it does replace itself. But if it is being destroyed faster than it's replaced, then yes, there is a danger that you can perforate a hole right through your intestine, and that is a surgical emergency.
0: Right. So the surgeons have to come in. Um, they they have to patch the hole, and and usually, you know, if there's any spillage of stuff like stool, you have to clean it out. That's super important. But then at that point, you're no longer just treating Shigella in the bowel. Then you're worried about peritonitis, and sepsis, where the bacteria then escapes to the bloodstream. Now, Josh, there are the very, very young, and then uh, those of us who are um, elderly or if we have immune-compromising conditions. So kind of barring those folks who have a severe complication, the very young, and then the immune-compromised, a lot of the time... You do have to treat, but the treatment is hydration.
1: How do you diagnose this aside from the fact that if someone comes to you and says, I'm pooping blood, you think, well, (laughs) which I mean, it's, it's a valid question. Like lots, lots of diseases cause gastrointestinal distress. So how do you tell, you know, this hemorrhagic dysentery from just a Montezuma's revenge?
0: Sure, sure. And, you know, it makes sense, by and large, for either of those, you wouldn't give antibiotics. But there are complications we're going to talk about soon, where if you have Shigella, you really have to watch out. So, Josh, it used to be that this took a really, really long time, you'd have to have that bacterial media. uh, And by that, by the way, I don't mean like, you know, podcasts and videos. Uh, that's, viral, be, viral
1: media, that's viral viral media <laughs> we're talking about bacterial media
0: there you go so you you'd have to have a uh, blood agar and uh we call this other stuff it's chocolate agar and it's called chocolate because then it's you
1: definitely actually, not chocolate you only chocolate. have to make that mistake once uh, <laughs> oh gross
0: yeah, the, yeah it's actually,
1: it was the, gross.
0: Yeah, it looks like chocolate because the uh, blood cells which make up the agar mixed in are actually lysed. They're broken open so that all of the nutrients are made available to the bacteria. And then, um, you know, we have the McConkie and several others. We would have to grow out the bacteria, and so you'd have to plate out a a small amount of the stool. Of course, you're going to have lots of different types of bacteria. You'd need a technician who really, really knew how to tell different colonies apart. So a colony is an aggregate of bacteria, and depending on a lot of the genus and the species of the bacteria, so if you have uh, Salmonella versus Escherichia or Shigella, um, then they grow differently. They look tan or brown or white, or they look wet or dry. So you'd have to have a technician who really knew what they were looking for, looking for that bacteria. They'd have to gram stain it, run biochemical testing, and then finally you put an identification. And then, Josh, if you said, oh, I need to treat it still, um, they'd have to test it against antimicrobials to see what would work. Nowadays, um, it's becoming increasingly available that we have molecular testing where you can send the stool... And then you can actually extract all of the DNA out of the stool, so all the bacterial DNA and everything else. Just like and Jurassic
1: Park, but with your poop. just
0: like Jurassic Park. Only in this case, we're not going to try to like grow. <laughs> we're only amplifying very specific stretches. Actually, nowadays we'll actually amplify and examine for uh, the Shiga toxin that a lot of these um, Shikelas actually have on their on their genome, um, and then we have other. Stretches of the uh, the genome that are very very unique to Shigella that you can amplify on those PCRs, and interestingly, Josh and we'll talk about this soon in, in treatment. This horrible toxin, this Shiga toxin, has actually kind of skipped different bacteria and actually been shared over with some strains of e coli so and and that's really important to know whether or not you have that toxin you know whether it comes from e coli or from shigella so it's really cool nowadays that we have this molecular test and josh i'm talking about you know from from poop into the lab and then running it, I'm talking about like hours, boom, 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 you got it, and it's amplified. And then while you're waiting for all the other information, you can just be like, ah, Shigella.
1: Let's talk a little bit about treatment. So as you said, you know, the diagnosis mm. is not unimportant, but in a lot sure. of times, the biggest concern we have with diarrhea is can we stay ahead of how much fluid you're losing? Can we keep up with your fluid output?
0: Yes, and electrolytes and everything, and yeah, by and large, it might be bloody, it might be a little gross, but if you can stay hydrated, then this too shall pass.
1: Well, too much of it is passing. That's that's what we need to. Yeah. So now let's let's head our let's head back to Canada and moose soup, and <laughs> and I choose to. I choose to believe even though they're separated by about 50 years. I yeah. choose to believe that the next guy is one of the ones who was eating moose soup while making this discovery.
0: Sure. Yeah, this is like, you know, uh like love in the time of cholera.
1: <laughs> Dysentery in the time of moose soup.
0: Well, this well, this would be like discovery in the time of moose soup.
1: <laughs> so, French-Canadian microbiologist Yeah. Before I even go Disclaimer, mm. I'm going to yeah. mispronounce a lot. Uh, uh,
0: <laughs> do you want me to just say it?
1: Do, do you want to do this one since you love correcting my French pronunciations?
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, so the, the microbiologist's name was probably, if I'm pronouncing this properly, is Félix or Félix derrel
1: Definitely not how I would have said it. <laughs> And he is credited...
0: It looks a little bit like Félix de Harrel.
1: (laughs) Yeah, so (laughs) French-Canadian microbiologist Félix de Harrel was studying at the Institut Pasteur in Paris, France, and he was sent there to study an outbreak of severe hemorrhagic dysentery among French troops in July 1915 at Mm -hmm. maisons Lafitte, northwest of Paris. Don't at me. (laughs) Shut up. When he added... So he got a bunch of these French troops, and Mm. he took samples of he he took well. He asked a bunch of the French. Well,
0: actually, no. This was before uh, any kind of like uh, ethics. There there was no there was no informed
1: consent here. He just he went around collecting poop. He was a weird guy. Um, So he basically collected a bunch of filtrates of feces, you know, poop tubes from patients recovering from dysentery. And then when he added it to a broth culture of the original strain of dysentery, it cleared. Oh, cool. Now, how is this different from what we were talking about before with the cultures? This is a little bit different. He took a little tube of just pure dysentery, and then Mm -hmm. he added people who had had dysentery, and they were recovering from it. And he took a little stew of their poop and put it Mm -hmm. into the disease stew. And, you know, adding a wrong to a wrong made it right.
0: <laughs> similarly, okay.
1: Similarly, run with me here. I'm gonna. I'm getting yes. some. I'm going somewhere with this.
0: No, no. no I, I I. This is okay. So something in, like one type of poop, got rid of the offending bacteria and the other kind of poop. Something. Yes.
1: Okay. Got similarly, it. Similarly, okay. addition hmm. of drops of this magical poop filtrate <laughs> to to Gross. culture to culture plates you know, to agriplates yeah. covered with bacterial culture, yeah. led to the formation of clear spots. So it just destroyed these colonies. But these yeah. results were only found if you took, you know, poop liquid from patients who were recovering from dysentery. And the key word here is recovering, convalescent patients, not yeah. if you took it from patients with active dysentery.
0: Right, okay, okay.
1: So as soon as somebody was starting to kind of improve, their stool was becoming more formed, they weren't losing as much liquid, you weren't seeing blood, that's who you sneak in and grab their poop. And <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> what? <laughs> therefore,
1: Deharel wrote up a paper. <laughs> what are
0: and he you imagining found, this guy's doing?
1: <laughs> thus, Deharel had found a microbe, you, here you go, just, just read, I'll, I'll, I'll give the translation after, you go ahead and read the French version. What did he, f- <laughs> what did he found in French?
0: Okay, Darrell found a microbe invisible antagonist de basile dysenterique.
1: So, for those of you who don't understand, speak, or pronounce French,
0: <laughs> okay. yeah.
1: he found something the... that could essentially kill dysentery in these patients.
0: Yeah. And he. this is kind of cool. This was before virology, right? So what he said is there's an invisible microbe antagonist uh, against the dysentery bacilli. So he he doesn't know what it is. He doesn't know what's going on. He just knows there's something in here. And here's kind of the trick about it, Josh, in terms of like the methodology that he would have used. Um, he probably, when he was getting the filtrate of the stool, is that he was using a filter that was too small. Like the, the pores in the filter were too small to allow bacteria to pass through it. So that means it wasn't another microbe or another bacteria. It was something even smaller, you know, That's on, on a scale part. that you can see. For those sorry, of you,
1: those of you without the medical education listening at home... That was the coolest sentence in this whole description. (laughs) He found something that was killing these bacteria that absolutely could not be another bacteria because he was using (laughs) filters to prevent his sneaky stolen poop from catching any bacteria. So what did he found? This was the very first, not the first discovery of this microbe, but he discovered bacteriophages, which are Mm -hmm. little viruses viruses that Mm -hmm. exist solely to attack and eat bacteria. And he then took this discovery and did the very first therapeutic use of bacteriophages to treat dysentery at the Hospital of Infant Maladies in Paris in 1919, (laughs) <laughs> four patients shut up
0: four patients. <laughs> no no i i know it looks like infant maladies but it's actually the hospital of sick children
1: <laughs> and what's what's a sick child but an infant with a malady
0: <laughs> you're right i'm sorry yeah
1: technically back. correct the best kind <laughs> of correct
0: the best kind of correct i'm sorry
1: Sorry. Don't hate me. What we've discovered is that I have apparently a secret hatred of the French language. I was. <laughs> <old enough. laughs>
0: I I know for a fact that you know how to per, like try to pronounce.
1: <laughs> All right, humble brag, folks. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I speak four languages, and I can't pronounce shit <laughs> <in> French. <laughs>
0: Seven years worth of this stuff Coming out in this, in this 30 second clip Right here right. Uh,
1: This is the hill I will die on You can pry proper pronunciation Of French from my cold dead hands So Four patients were injected With preparations of this Bacteriophage mm, yeah. And within
0: By the way already (laughs) scared shitless he, he took poop and guaranteed he filtered it you know to down to like a very teeny tiny bit but this is still not like way not safe
1: this is this is not quite the same as the earliest fecal transplant sure but it's using some of the same methods like he is giving poop but it is not the poop itself or the microbiome it yeah. was the bacteriophage that he filtered out of recovered patients.
0: Right, right. But we're still in an era, by the way, where we don't understand a lot of virology. There, you know, bacteriology is fairly nascent. So this was terribly dangerous.
1: Within 24 hours, all four of the patients were recovering from symptoms. 100% Woo! success rate
0: yeah <laughs>
1: this marked awesome. this marked the birth of the bacteriophage therapy era using viruses that attack bacteria to cure bacterial diseases and this went on for years and years until in the Western world uh antibiotics kind of took over bacteriophages around the nineteen forties that was the big antibiotic development push and Mm -hmm. bacteriophages were kind of relegated into near obscurity. Now they are starting to be studied a little bit more, but you know what country has continued using bacteriophage therapy for years and years, even since that time?
0: I'll give you all a hint.
1: (laughs) 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 That's right. The country of Tetris. I'm sorry, (laughs) Russia. Uh,
0: Yes, the country of Tetris and onion domes.
1: Russia has (laughs) continued even to the modern day to use bacteriophages in their hospitals in a very different approach to treatment than uh, Western and European. And it's actually been equally useful. It's a whole other route that we could benefit from exploring a little bit more. But this was kind of the birth of that therapy. Uh, Mm -hmm. in French (laughs) Canada
0: it was and Josh we're not too too far away here from uh, what's going on with virology right so there was Felix Derel over here so using bacteriophages although he doesn't know what they were and you're going to love this name Frederick William Twart
1: that is pretty good (laughs)
0: yeah so 1915 and you know you're you're starting to actually get discovery of these bacteriophages and then Thomas Milton rivers not too far along the way in 1926 uh, you know kind of made a formal definition of viruses as obligate intracellular parasites and then you know the the invention of the electron microscope was in 1931 not too far away. And then finally they were able to like fully visualize what these things looked like. But yeah, up until then it was bacteriophage, those that eat bacteria.
1: That's it for this week's episode of Around the World in 80 Plagues.
0: I'm just going to join in.
1: You should. It's fun. <laughs> it's cathartic. Yeah. Just for funsies, I'm going to throw in mm-hmm. another just the tip.
0: Oh yeah, hey. uh, yeah, yeah.
1: This one's for our our U.S. bound folks, as we can travel freely through the country, but still are kind of locked out of other places. <laughs> and yeah. over in Saint Paul, Minnesota, there is a delightful museum of questionable medical devices. That's the actual name. <laughs> Uh, formerly <laughs> formerly known as the Museum of quackery,
0: oh gotcha, gotcha, okay, so this is it, it, th- these were either used as medical devices or at least sold as medical devices
1: it is and it just turned out to be all of the useless and bizarre things people have implemented in attempts to cure ailments, including the psychograph, which determined elements of a person's personality by analyzing small bumps on their head um for the ladies, a foot powered breast enlarger, uh, <laughs> soap that suds off the pounds, or a pair, a pair of weight reduction glasses.
0: Weight reduction glasses? Is that to reduce your own weight or the person who you're looking at? Unclear. <laughs> Ironic for being glasses. <laughs> <laughs>
1: So it it's comprised of major collections on loan from the American Medical Association, the FDA, the St. Louis Science Center, the Backen Library, the Council Against Health Fraud, and all of it was donated to the Science Museum of Minnesota in 2002. um, And the whole collection was put on display in 2016 in their Weighing the Evidence exhibit. So it's it's definitely worth checking out uh, to tour if you don't have access to minnesota there is a website the museum of quackery that Mm. you can visit and all of this was assembled by the wonderful world-renowned expert on medical quackery and health fraud bob mccoy (laughs)
0: oh that's Uh, such a nice like who dedicated his
1: life yeah he dedicated his life to exposing nonsense and pseudoscience so i mean this this was Founded on very good principles, but he was just like, you know, what's really cool? I'm going to collect every single medical device that we have disproved as <laughs> ridiculous and put it all in one place for people to enjoy. So, well, this, uh,
0: I, I hope they kind of continue to accumulate stuff like over the ages, because, like, I mean, eventually, like all the goop stuff has got to end up in this museum.
1: Listen, anything yeah. promoted by Gwyneth Paltrow belongs in this museum.
0: A hundred percent. Like, I mean, we don't even need to wait for like, you know, history to bear out. Goop
1: goop is an entire museum of questionable medical devices (laughs) by itself, but I'm not here to get sued by pepper pots. So we're going to bring this episode to a close. As always, we love to hear your comments, questions, and feedback. If you'd like to support us spiritually, emotionally, or financially, links to do that are in the show notes, along with links to some of the sources used in researching this episode. Our, the show is produced by me with a lot of help from Dr. Santosh and Friends. Our theme music is composed by Rachel Leisure. And until next time, as always, wash your hands, wear mm. a mask, stay mm. safe, and if you're get your vaccines mm. and If you're able and lucky enough to have the time, energy, and vaccination status, Mm -hmm. happy travels.
0: Bye, guys. (laughs) No <laughs>